I think that you've got so many, you've got such a disproportionate number of black and brown people caught up in the system, uh, particularly only around marijuana, that it really uh, creates tremendous disparities and unfairness. And I would say that I support marijuana legalization. I support um, making sure that uh, black and brown and other entrepreneurs uh, can get involved in the marijuana industry because it is an industry and that, you know, the people who have been extra hurt uh, because of the war on drugs uh, would be able to participate and that uh, there would be some recognition as licenses were granted to dispense marijuana and sell it legally, that there would be consideration for entrepreneurs who come from communities who have historically been excluded uh, and uh, even oppressed. Grand Rising. This is your community storyteller, Trill Mama, and revered MC. Shavunda brings the thunder. Here with my co-host and KRSM station manager, Andrea Pierre. And this is our show, Power Perspectives, where we talk about policy, art, building power, self-care, and community life in Minneapolis. First you get the money. 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 So this first half, we're just going to be, you know, talking about this election that's coming up and just getting us in the groove for that. But if you go to our voter guide, if you have a physical copy or if you go online, you'll see that the incumbent Minnesota attorney general is Keith Ellison. Um, and he is seeking a second term against Republican challenger Jim Schultz. And the primary duty of the office is to provide legal representation for the state government. The office also enforces consumer protection and antitrust laws, regulates charitable institutions, and advocates for people and small businesses in utility proceedings. You can go there to file complaints, you know, against businesses. Um, you can go there to file complaints um, about uh, fraud or scams you believe that are taking place. Um, with Keith Ellison, their previous government experience is being a congressman for 5th District from 2007 to 2019. They served in State House from 2003 to 2007. Their goals are to support increased staffing for criminal prosecutions. Um, to support legalization of marijuana for recreational use, expand staffing for antitrust enforcement, their accomplishments. They served as special prosecutor for the case of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd. The case ended in the conviction for second degree murder and two lesser charges and a 22 and a half year prison sentence. Uh, they created a unit in the attorney general offices to fight wage theft, recouped over 300 million from nine opioid manufacturers. This is from Star Trip, um, 2006, I mean, August 26, 2022. They started programs for prosecutors to initiate applications for pardons and to review wrongful convictions. And a quote, Serving Minnesotans as attorney general is my life's greatest honor. 
I filed to run for re-election so that I can continue to build on our many accomplishments. I'm excited to continue to connect with voters on the campaign trail about how we can continue to help Minnesotans afford their lives and live with dignity, safety, and respect. As Attorney General, I will continue fighting for a fair economy and protecting Minnesotans against violent crime, fraud, and economic abuse. So y'all, just tapping into this voter guide um, that Pillsbury United Communities put together in North News. We have another and really- KRSM. And KRSM. And documenters. Okay, and documenters, all of that, that our policy and narrative uh, team here at PUC and our media entities. There's another really important seat um, that is up for election that collaborates with the attorney general's role, um, which is the Hennepin County attorney. And so um, the current county attorney, Mike Freeman, is retiring. And there are two candidates who are running for the office, which are Mary Moriarty and Martha Holton Dimmick. Uh, the primary duties of the office are to provide legal representation for the county government and to prosecute criminal cases in Hennepin County. So um, these, both of these uh, candidates are DFL. Um, Martha's a retired judge and Mary is an attorney. I think um, the two of them have some really interesting endorsements if we were to pay attention to who um, they are endorsed by. Um, what I've noticed is that Martha is heavily endorsed by police. Um, and that Mary is heavily endorsed by people, um, by community, um, um, by different organizations um, out in Minnesota, um, by some really major community voices, you know? So um, I think just looking at different things like that are really important and are really valuable. And it says a lot about who these candidates are trusted by. Um, yeah. I think it's different too when you talk about their approach. I think there are some things that they do have in common, um, being women identified, really having two great stories. I think about how they navigated their careers um, it's interesting that they're both DFL candidates, um, but I think what I do agree with you on for sure is how they think about policing. And I think that's their one of their biggest differences. Um, thinking about Martha Holton Demick, um, just the way that she wants to increase the police staffing and the way that she thinks about youth offenders and how to rehab rehabilitate them. Um, is one of the things that really stands out with me. Um, 
And then for Mary Moriarty, she has like a lot of Twitter fame, I feel like, too, when it comes to like local politics. It seems like a lot of people in the Twin Cities metro area really follow and listen to what she has to say on there. Um, But she's really about holding. It sounds like she's more about holding police accountable when it comes to certain things um, and then evaluating what they're doing, looking at the data and seeing how they can make changes in policing that way. It doesn't sound like they really are for, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but to increasing those police staffing sizes and things like that. Right. Um, You know, it's a very contested race. Um, You know, there's been a lot of allegations of like name calling and or if someone has a license or not for to even become and practice law in the state. So I think I really do encourage people to go to those folks' websites and really look at and vote, your, and vote with your conscience about who you think would be a good fit for Minneapolis. Mike Freeman had a very hard... Um, and long reign. <laughs> long reign I remember calling that number, you know, um, Calling, calling Mike Freeman to hold police accountable. Um, and yeah, like you said, with these two candidates that we have, it seems that one is more interested in having that police accountability, Mary, and then one is more interested in having more police presence um, within communities, Martha. And um, yeah, we have some quotes from them too. From our voter guide, um, Martha's quote is, then the Minneapolis City Council pledged to defund and dismantle the police. I lived in North Minneapolis in the early 1990s. I know what it's like being neglected by public servants, including police. We are left to solve our problems on our own. It is not the utopia that these young activists envisioned when they attempted to stand in solidarity with my community at Powderhorn Park. But as a judge, I had to be careful. So I held my tongue publicly for the next year. And Mary's is that this is our opportunity to define our values around criminal issues, to answer the urgent call for change highlighted by the murder of George Floyd and to address the increase in violent crime. As county attorney, I will implement a proactive, data-driven approach to these issues. I believe this is our time to forge a new path forward, one that keeps our community safe while also ending the cycles of mass incarceration that have decimated communities of color and broken up too many families. Together, we can and will build a justice we system that works Keith Ellison. for everyone. Keith has served as attorney general since Minnesotans first elected him in 2018 as the people's lawyer. Keith's job is to help Minnesotans afford their lives and live with dignity, safety, and respect. His guiding values are generosity, equity, transparency, and inclusion. As attorney general, Keith has expanded the office's strong tradition of consumer protection. He's fought to lower pharmaceutical drug prices, hold opioid companies accountable for the deadly opioid epidemic, to protect tenants from exploitation, protect seniors from scams and abuse, protect student borrowers, and hold major corporations accountable for consumer fraud and deception, and much more. Keith 
has kept campaign promises to create a unit in the attorney general's office to fight wage theft, work on lowering those pharmaceutical drug prices from a task force on improving women's economic security and fight for economic fairness for farmers and people in greater Minnesota. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Keith has used the tools of the attorney general to keep Minnesota families and communities safe to fight pandemic profiteering and illegal evictions and to protect small businesses from unfair competition. Keith is a leader for criminal justice reform and accountability. He's the lead prosecutor of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and led the team that successfully convicted former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on a charge of second degree murder. Before becoming attorney general, Keith represented Minnesota's in the U.S. House of Representatives for 12 years, where he championed consumer, worker, environmental and civil rights protections for all. Before entering Congress, Keith served in the Minnesota House of Representatives for four years and practiced law as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney for 16 years, including five years as executive director of the Legal Rights Center. As a leader of this public interest law firm, Keith oversaw a team of attorneys focused on delivering justice for Minnesotans who had nowhere else to turn. Welcome, welcome, Keith Ellison. If we had a clap track, it would be clapping right now for that. Well, it's good to be with you, Shavonda and Andrea. I thank you guys for having me. I'm very grateful for the invitation. Very important times we're living in, and I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And so we like to begin all our conversations with a grounding question of what is bringing you joy today, these days, or recently? You know, uh, just meeting wonderful human beings like yourselves, you know, just hearing stories from people who have faced challenges and overcome those challenges, people who engaged in creative problem solving, uh, just the resilience, the beauty, the the, just the the, the hope that I encounter every day. It really is a privilege and uh, that's bringing me joy. Wonderful. I love that. I love to hear that. It's meeting the people, experiencing folks, talking with folks who are creating and creating solutions and using their art as a platform and as a tool for doing that. You know, I give myself a a hand clap, you know, as an artist um, who prides myself on doing that. And I think as a station here at KRSM. So I'm intrigued by your slogan that Keith's job is to help Minnesotans afford their lives and live with dignity and safety and respect. When you say afford, I think about inflation, which has been hard hitting on vulnerable communities um, such as mothers with the rise of baby formula. How do you create affordability in these instances? Yeah, you know, this issue of affording your life is really, really critical. And to me, it's why I ran for attorney general in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, can I tell you all a quick story as to how I got onto this? We love to hear stories. So I, I met this lady at a community meeting. Her name was Nicole. She walked up to me and she said to me, look, my son uh, turned from 25 to 26 He used to be on my insurance and then he was on his own. He was a type one diabetic and he was trying to start one of those brew pubs. You know what those brew pubs that are all over where they make the beer right on site. Mm -hmm. And she says that she, he was putting all the money into that. So 
he starts to ration his insulin. Mm. He's not taking the full dose. He's skipping doses because what he saw is that the insulin goes from a few bucks when he's 25 and on mom's insurance to $1,300 when he gets off. And he cannot afford it. Wow. And he can't and he can't pay for it. So he's rationing in it. And his body goes into keto acidosis, which his, which which is what happens to a, a diabetic when they don't have their insulin. And uh, he died. Mm-hmm. So you guys are both pretty young, but from the perspective of somebody who's in their 40s or 50s losing their 25-year-old child, their 26-year-old child, it's just no coming back from that. You know. This, you know, it's just a heartbreak, you know, and instead, nobody would blame her, Nicole, if she just dealt with her grief and tried to get through the day. But what she did is she started something called Insulin for All. Wow. And she came to me and she said, what can you do? And at this time I was in Congress, but I realized in Congress I could write the law. But what really was the problem is enforcing the law because the law already said you cannot conspire against consumers to uh, fix the prices of pharmaceutical drugs and jack them up so high that people can't pay. There already was laws against it. There's antitrust laws that say you can't do that, but they were doing it. Mm -hmm. So we needed a law enforcer. So I ran for attorney general in part because I said to myself, you know, Alex Smith, he didn't die from diabetes. He died because he couldn't afford his life. There are people who get old, real old on with diabetes. If they get their insulin, they don't get it. They don't. So he didn't die from from diabetes. He died because he couldn't afford his life. And so I started saying our job is to help people afford their lives, afford your rent, afford your get your, you know, so we started a wage theft unit where we go after employers who don't pay their workers. You'd be surprised how often that happens particularly for people who are making very low wages. Mm-hmm. And these folks are getting ripped off and cheated by their employer. And what we did is we we have returned thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars back to workers who worked hard and didn't get paid properly. We have we started a housing unit where we uh, take bad landlords to court. Um, and that grew out of our work with COVID because in COVID, you know, there was a there was a eviction moratorium. Yes. So we had to fight to keep people in their house a lot during that time. And so we just said, well, even though the eviction moratorium is over, there's still people facing serious housing issues. So we we kept our unit together and we, you know, have, have done a lot of good work in North Minneapolis. We took one landlord to court who was uh, m- mistreating over 267 families. This guy's name was Stephen Meldahl. He took these people uh, and, he, and he had them living in squalor conditions. Uh, you know, many of these units were they were, they were uh, occupied by women and their kids, mm-hmm. women and their kids. And some of these places were in very bad shape and they had infestation problems, right? You know, mice and squirrels. They had, you know, uh, they were lead unsafe. You know, lead is a neurotoxin substance yep. which can cause serious cognitive challenges for children. You know, one day we can come together and talk about lead, y'all. Absolutely. So I I, I do have a question for you, though, just about like your work. Like, I do feel like you have a long 
trajectory in your work in history of being about not complaining necessarily, but activation, even just like the story you told about the mother with the diabetic son. Um, I'm thinking of how marijuana use for recreational use and legalization of that and thinking about all the black and brown folks who are incarcerated right now. And how can we how can we make sure that this is equitable the way that this is going to be rolled out in the state? Because I think it's coming, but it's just like, how can your office affect all the people who have been incarcerated that are suffering <laughs> off of this this legislation that's currently as it is in the books? Well, let me let's talk about marijuana for a second. And I just want to say, I just I just always say this and maybe I shouldn't even say it, but I'll say it anyway. I personally don't partake. Right. And but that doesn't mean others don't. Then they and I think that I've never met anybody who OD'd on marijuana, right? And I think it should be uh, recreationally available for people. And it is available in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, District of Columbia, Michigan, all throughout the Netherlands and in, uh, in Europe. And you know, there it is. Uh, I think it's one of those personal choice adult things that if you want to do it, that you should be up to you. But the problem has been uh, several fold. One problem is that up until very recently, it was a schedule one under the drug control uh, legislation. And what that meant is that it would be treated like heroin or something. Mm -hmm. We not now President Biden changed that. I support that change to a lower level of 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 categorization so that, you know, it's 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 um, deemed to be, you know, not. Uh, a, a dangerous substance with no redeeming qualities, which is what makes it a category category one. So I'm in favor of that federal change. I supported that federal change. The other thing is the banking regulations. So if you want to start a marijuana, you know, uh, uh, business, uh, you you it's hard to get an account because it's illegal, right? In federal government. Well, I've been advocating for that to change as well. So that if you want to, you know, be involved in that business in a legal way and it's legal in your state, then you should be able to do it without uh, worry about federal banking regulations. Um, but I do believe that another issue that we've got to do is we've got to expunge and give pardons to everybody who got these marijuana convictions. Now, look, if you were carrying guns and stuff and shooting people with marijuana, then I'm not sorry. You're different in my mind. But. If it's just a marijuana conviction, you shouldn't have that conviction, you know, and that should not be something that is locking you out of society, that is keeping you from participating in society. Uh, and I and I, I think that you've got so many you've got such a disproportionate number of black and brown people caught up in the system, uh, particularly only around marijuana, that it really uh, creates tremendous disparities and unfairness. And I would say that I support marijuana legalization. I support um, making sure that uh, black and brown and other entrepreneurs uh, can get involved in the marijuana industry because it is an industry. And that, you know, the people who have been extra hurt uh, because of the war on drugs uh, would be able to participate and that uh, there would be some recognition as licenses were granted to dispense marijuana and sell it legally that there would be consideration for entrepreneurs who come from communities who have historically been excluded uh, and uh, even oppressed. Uh, so those are some of my thoughts about it. Absolutely. And it's really great to hear because what I'm I'm hearing um, 
a tone of equity. I'm hearing a tone of compassion, um, a, a compassion that we recognize um, that is being granted um, to those who are dealing with the opioid ep- epidemic right now. And it would be uh, it would behoove uh, lawmakers to have that same compassion when we look at marijuana convictions. Right. Right. Um, now, I'm also on the pardon board. And whenever these, uh, you know, just so you all know, the pardon board is a board made up of the governor, the attorney general and the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And we meet about two times uh, per year. I wish we met more. Uh, but we have really increased the number of cases that we look at. And I'm if ever I get anybody in front of me who has uh, a low level drug uh, possession case, like a marijuana case, uh, I always agree to expunge those. Now, when it's a matter of violence, that's different. You know, hurting someone. Now you got victims. Right. Uh, but if it's just a, uh, a drug possession case uh, and the person is you know, turn their life around and stuff. I I make it as a matter of policy that I don't, that I always agree to let those folks get a fresh start uh, because I think that the war on drugs, that's really, really kicked into gear in 1989 when Lynn Bias died. Uh, We really double sentences and we doubled this and we doubled that and we made a a bunch of things death eligible for the death penalty. Uh, And I think that our society needs to say, the focus needs to be on safety, not anger and and hurting people who we think are just just not just based on punishment, but more based on safety. And the difference between punishment and safety, in my view, is that if you focus on safety, you think about the victims, you think about uh, making the defendant um, have a new have a be law abiding. You're thinking about things of like rehabilitation, whereas if you, all you want to do is punish then, you know, you, you know, more then more prisons, more, you know, harsher sentences. And and that's all you want to do. But I'm more focused on public safety. I do believe people have a right to be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, some of the laws that we have around marijuana make don't 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 advance the cause of public safety. In fact, they uh, make it so that some communities, black and brown communities are statistically stopped more, arrested more, charged more. And then, uh, you know, engage more in the criminal justice system. I'm glad that you're bringing up public safety because it's a hot topic issue still in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. We're noticing that a lot of the candidates that are running are really giving Minneapolis pretty much a beating about being unlawful and lawlessness. And that it's just like acting like it's a wild, wild west here, which is very hard to digest as a citizen of Minneapolis. Um, How is your message as attorney general hitting in greater Minnesota, you know, those people who are being fed a lot of fear, in my opinion, about what it is to be uh, living in the Twin Cities at this time. Well, well, every time I talk to somebody, they come away saying, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What you're saying makes sense. But they are being uh, basically fed a diet of Willie Horton ads. You you guys may not remember that, but I remember Willie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Willie Horton. Uh, he was he was a criminal defendant in Massachusetts and he was used and basically they blame Michael Dukakis for for all crime uh, because of the behavior of Willie Horton. And he was flashed across every ad 
and made, you know, basically uh, rural whites believe that crime was always black, always violent, and it was a threat to them personally. And and, and as a result of that, uh, he used that to uh, win the presidency and defeat Michael Dukakis. It was unfair. It was racist. It was wrong. But I'm proud to tell you that when I talk to people about public safety, people always make they're like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Because, you know, whether you're white, black or brown, no matter what color you may be, if you say, look, we know what creates a safe community. Part of it is, in fact, investigating and prosecuting violent criminals. If you are a low income black mom in the middle of North Minneapolis mm-hmm. and somebody shoots your child, you want that person investigated. You want that person prosecuted. That's just a fact. And that's reality. But it can't just stop there. It's got to be. Well, what about all these uh, guns that are on the street? Absolutely. You know, we got to get these guns off the street. You sh- this shouldn't be easy for a kid to get a gun. And now it kind of is, which is why I brought a lawsuit against a gun retailer who has been negligently selling guns. I don't know if y'all heard about this case, but we sued Fleet Farm because we can show that they were negligently selling guns to straw purchasers. And for your listeners, they may not know what a straw purchaser is. A straw purchaser is somebody who does not have a criminal record and is therefore eligible to buy a gun, but um, doesn't intend to keep that gun what they intend to do with that gun is to just resell it to someone else. Hmm. So a straw purchaser is a fake purchaser. They're just, they're just a pass through and what they're trying to, and what they're really doing is promoting gun trafficking. And so, you know, you ask yourself, you know, where do all these guns come from? Well, some of them come from fleet farm and were just sold negligently uh, to, uh, you know, people who who sold them. And these good fleet farm guns ended up in crimes. One of them ended up in a in the I don't know if y'all remember last year, there was they call it the truck um, park shooting 14 people in St. Paul killed, not killed, shot. My Forgive me. I said killed, but that they weren't all killed. They were shot. One was killed. One was killed. And um, at this woman's funeral, all these friends of hers come in there with slings on and all kinds of evidence that they were in a, in a mass shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of these was, this was a fleet farm gun. This was one, this was an illegally trafficked gun. Uh, and then in a whole separate incident, a six-year-old kid finds one in a yard. That's a fleet farm gun. Wow. And, and when they went to this guy's house who had been selling these good, who had been buying these fleet farm guns, you know how many guns they found in there? None. Why? Cause he sold them all. Wow. He sold them all. So you ask yourself, you know, I mean, Spike uh, Moss loves to say, well, you know, you don't really find gun manufacturing plants in the black community, nor do you find too many gun retailers in the black community. And yet all these shootings are over here. Well, why is that? Well, some folks um, make a lot of money by illegally and negligently selling guns into communities uh, where uh, some of these tragic incidents occur. And so um, we're trying to go upstream. We're trying to say, look, what if there weren't? Now, look, I don't want to make anybody think that I'm against guns. I own guns myself, mm-hmm. you know, but I lock them up. And, you know, there should uh, be I, regulations I, and safety around it. Absolutely. Right. There should be reg- there should be background checks, regulation and safety. And there, and if we did that, th- I mean, I hear about people having their guns stolen out of their car. I'm like, why would you leave your gun in your car? Mm-hmm. 
that's just wrong. You shouldn't. You should get in trouble for that, in Absolutely. my opinion. Absolutely. No. That's a part of negligence. Yeah. And and Bell Hooks, who speaks um, so much to, to love um, and a love ethic within society, in a greater society, also believed in having guns as well. And it was a, a matter of safety, though. It was it's a matter of it that being regulated and that it's not um, it's the regulations around it and the negligence around it that creates um, violence within communities. Um, Not. Yeah. Yeah. But you are asking me about public safety. I think public safety is, is gun safety. Public safety is good housing, Mm -hmm. which is why I've done a lot on housing, because if you ever notice if the housing is really bad and run down, that's where you're going to see people selling dope out of that house. Absolutely. You ever notice that? Yes. Yeah. That's where you're going to see a lot of uh, bad stuff happening. You know, when the housing is just run down and nobody cares. The other, the other thing is that that makes a safe community is um, investment in that community. Mm-hmm. Solid schools, good schools with wraparound services, you know, make for a good community. And these kind of investments are necessary. And the people trying to demagogue crime right now, they never talk about that. They never talk about what actually makes a safe community. They make you believe that the only thing you need for a safe community is throwing more people who look like us in jail. Absolutely. And and I'm, that's why I'm so intrigued to hear you speak about investment, because I think it's really important. I think um, what I'm hearing you touch on are a lot of the root causes for the issues that we are facing and that we have. And that instead of meeting violence with violence, violence with punishment, that we're looking at what the natural consequences are. And we're looking to better invest in our communities to uproot these issues at the source. Um, which sounds a lot like conscious parenting to me. It just sounds like really good parenting that we already know um, that we can't become, start to over-police as a means for creating change that we really have to invest um, and build up our community. And that's how we create safe communities. That's how um, we mitigate some of the violent crime um, that we face is that investment. And so I'm really glad we to hear to, that. You have to center victims more. I mean, absolutely. If you've ever sat with somebody who's lost a loved one, they're devastated. They go from being quiet and not saying anything to being rageful. Mm-hmm. You know, they go from, you know, uh, depression to anxiety You know, they don't know how to. It's very hard. So we've got to have more services. I think there should be more um, uh, reparative services for crime victims, you know, uh, because one of the problems is that if you're if you're thought if if in some way you're your people think that, you know, you're a defendant or a part of it, you know, then they'll say you're not a victim. You know what I mean? So, like, if you get into a fight with somebody and then somebody comes around later and there's a shooting incident involving you where you're the victim of it, they might say, well, you, you helped perpetuate this. Mm. And, and so the, what, what we need to do is think about how to break the cycle of violence. Right. And so if you can restore people, help them with what lost wages, help them with funeral costs, medical bills, and help them with counseling and grief counseling, you might be able to break the cycle. And we do need to break the cycle 
And here's the something to maintain, you know, about 97% of all the people who go to prison are coming out. So if you think, if you say prison is the solution, what's your position on reentry, right? Recidivism. What's your position on employment and opportunity for people who you're going to send there? Cause they are coming home. Uh, you know, almost only about 3% are not getting back, not getting out. So, you know, that's another part of this public safety conversation. It is possible to take a person who is highly impulsive and violent. It may be, 19 years old, by the time they're 29 years old, they're no longer a threat to anyone, much of anyone. By the time they're 39 or 49, they're not a threat to anyone. How can we get those people on a job track, on a, doing something that makes them feel good about themselves? Because we know that hurt people hurt people, mm-hmm. right? So anyway. So you're running for re-election. What, what are your plans for next? Like if you're winning... Like what are what are you, what's the next steps for you? What are you what do you want to do in this next tenure if you're if you are the winner in this race? Well, what my plan is to make sure that we stand by people trying to afford their lives. That means protecting people's wages, protecting consumers, protecting uh, tenants, protecting small farmers. That means being an advocate in this economy, dealing with price gouging. You know, one of the things I did is I protected people from price gouging during the pandemic. So, you know, people who saw their egg prices go up three, four times, I went to court to make sure that stopped and then returned over a million eggs to uh, food shelves around the state of Minnesota. Now, we don't have a price gouging law in the state of Minnesota. I wish that we did. And I'm going to tell you why. Because a lot of the inflation that uh, uh, Shavanda has mentioned is uh, because uh, companies are just saying, well, you know, why don't we tack on an extra one or 2%? They'll just think it's inflation. And so they're literally driving inflation, contributing to inflation. If you, you can look up articles right now where companies are, are, are the ones who are adding on to, adding on to inflation. So you take a company like Exxon Mobil and they're, they make petroleum, right? They make gasoline for your car. Now, they have the rich, they have the best year in the history of their company ever, right? The best year ever. Why is that? Well, because they're price gouging people, because they are adding, tacking on two, three, four percent so that they can make a whole lot of money. I would like to see us pass um, some a price gouging statute. So that I could be more, uh, so that I could do more to to bring prices down for people, mm-hmm. right? right this is something my opponent will absolutely not do. But just so you know, you know the major oil companies, including Exxon, have posted fifty billion dollars in profits in just three months. You know, you, if you think high prices are just inflation, they're not just inflation; it's literally profiteering. And CEOs are going to get record bonuses while you and I and everybody is going to keep on struggling, just trying to make ends meet. Um, You know, one of my opponents, not one of my opponents, my only opponent, publicly criticized me for suing ExxonMobil. Why did I sue ExxonMobil? Because they knew in 1979 that their product was causing global climate change. And... They lied about it. 
They knew it. We can prove from internal documents that they knew that their product was causing global climate change. And yet they uh, they told the public that they didn't have that that was absolutely not true. And we can prove that they knew it. Now, I'm criticizing. I'm suing ExxonMobil. He says Keith Ellison is is suing, making harassing lawsuits against ExxonMobil. Mm-hmm. I'm like harassing. ExxonMobil has been harassing everybody in America. Well, it's also but just our, our, our corporation's people, you know, like, can you really harass a business like that? I don't know. Well, look, let me just tell you this. I don't think it's right to charge a company or a corporation with doing something that they didn't do. Mm-hmm. But if they did it, then they did it. They should be held accountable. Absolutely. They should be held accountable. Absolutely. You know, and so, look, we're not suing every oil company. We're suing ExxonMobil. We didn't sue every egg company. We sued one in particular. We didn't sue. I mean, the ones, if you obey the rules, you don't have to worry about me. Absolutely. So we just um, have uh, two final questions that we, that we asked our guests, which is um, we have a word from our Lord, Audrey Lord, that is, which is caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. What do you do for your self-care? And what is your definition of power as this is power perspectives? Well, my self-care is prayer, meditation, and then also adequate sleep and high quality, high nutrition food. Mm. So prayer, meditation. Yes. Get enough sleep, get enough food. Those, those things are really what I'm focusing on. And then your second question uh, was, uh, what was it again? What's your definition of power? That's right. What's my definition of power? Power is the ability to control your circumstances, to control your life, control your body, control yourself, control your time. That's power. If you have the ability, if you, if you have the ability to control your life and circumstances, then you have power. If you do not have the ability to control circumstances and your life, then you don't have any power. You're powerless. And another definition for being powerless is being in slavery. Mm. So power, I say, is a good thing if used with kindness, with wisdom, with fairness. That's what that's right. That's the truth. With kindness, wisdom and fairness. Then, you know, that is that is that is uh, when you have those things in operation, power is good. Now, power can be very bad in the hands of the selfish, greedy, wicked and racist. Absolutely. You know, and so what you need is to have power to control your circumstances. And you don't want to use it to control other people uh, unless they're your own children and you're doing it for their own good. But what you want to do is have people have freedom and you want to make sure that you have fairness and guardrails in society so everybody can enjoy their own personal power. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Attorney General Keith Ellison. Shavonda and Andrea, I do want to make prayers and blessings for you all today. Please go out and continue to do good. And uh, may you be blessed and highly favored. Ashe. Amen. Amun. We receive that. Thank you so much. And be well. Drink water. Get some sun. Peace. Tune in next week for more Power Perspectives.
Perspectives with me, Shavonda Brown, and my co-host, Andrea Pierre. Wishing you wellness. Peace.